Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Show. Today I am joined again by my good buddy George Gammon. And uh, if you don't know George, well, I'm sure you probably do by now. He does these amazing whiteboard videos, digs super deep into the financial system, and it's always a pleasure to talk to him. So George, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Mark. It's a pleasure to see you again. Yeah. So um, we've had a few conversations back and forth. I've been on your channel. You've been on my channel. Uh, we recently did a, a show with Robert Kiyosaki, which was amazing. We did that together and we had a big meetup, uh, which yeah. was super fun. That was, uh, that was pretty cool getting to talk to uh, some people that follow us. It really was, wasn't it? That, that was such a neat experience. I wasn't expecting anything like that. And you know, we were just expecting four or five people to show up at Top Golf. The next thing you know, we have 400 people RSVP. That I'm still kind of blown away by that. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was amazing the response, and and it was just so fun getting to talk to everybody and kind of get those individual perspectives, right? Yeah, totally. So um, you've been talking quite a bit about um, a couple topics that I want to dig in deep on too, and so um, I thought you might be the perfect person to talk to about these things that I want to talk about. So we're, I want to talk today about. Um, the Fed. We both talk about the Fed quite a bit. I want to talk about um, Janet Yellen and maybe yeah. this merging of the Fed and the Treasury, what that means. I want to dig into that. I want to talk about um, the Great Reset, debt jubilees, central bank digital currencies, kind of stuff like that. Um, and then we'll talk about ways that maybe we can kind of navigate that uh, long volatility, I, I, I think you like to call it. So those are kind of some of the topics that we'll dig into. Um, and you know, for anybody that doesn't know George, I'm sure you probably do. Just go check out his YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, he, he's been doing a lot. But I know you've been talking quite a bit about the TGA account, right? Yeah. The, Treasury, the Treasury account. And um, it looks like with this move that the Fed, or I, I guess I should say Biden announced Janet Yellen kind of moving into that Treasury role. Mm -hmm. I know you have some thoughts about that. What do you see with Janet Yellen taking that position with the Treasury role uh, how do you think that works with the Fed or what are they trying to angle for there? Right. So for those of the people who don't know, Janet Yellen was a former Fed chair. Right. Just right before Powell. So you're taking someone that intimately knows the balance sheet of the Fed and putting them in charge of the balance sheet of the government. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, if you look at MMT, what they tell you to do is they, one of their main philosophies is you've got to merge the government with the Fed or the central bank. They need to become one. So those two balance sheets need to become one balance sheet. So if you wanted to do that and execute on that MMT game plan, wouldn't you hire someone as treasury secretary that used to run the Fed? Yeah. Of course you would. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. of course. So I, I'm not saying that that's definitely their game plan. I don't know that Biden is that smart but I do know that we're gonna have MMT at some point in time. It's not really a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And if, they are, if he does have some people behind him that are a little bit smarter, that uh, want to get the Green New Deal going, or they wanna do more stimulus, or they wanna execute on this MMT game plan, they, they've hired the right person. And so I think that's kind of the direction that you're going. So you combine that with all the talk about the Banking for All Act, which means that all of us and businesses in the real economy now have an account with the Fed, just like the primary dealer banks. So what that means is the Fed 
or now maybe the government, they're creating these bank reserves and they're just depositing it directly into our accounts at the Fed. And that we spend now these, we'll call them, I don't, know, I don't want to call them crypto dollars because that implies a, a decentralized dollar. Right. But we spend these digital dollars, these Fed coins, these central bank digital currencies on our phone. And the, the Fed just kind of tops up our account that we have at the Fed with UBI every single month. And that's how I think they're going to incentivize everyone to have these accounts is, well, who, who doesn't want free money? If you want the free money, then you've got to download the app. And if you download the app, then you automatically have an account with the, the Fed or the Treasury, uh, whatever they want to call it, when they end up merging it, merging it in the future. Yep. So then what happens is all the transactions are, are going through the government. And I think that they'll start to process all of these transactions in real time. At the beginning, they'll probably argue that they're doing this to make better decisions on things like interest rates or how to further micromanage the economy through whatever crazy program they have going on at the time, whatever four or five letter acronym that you want to give it. The bottom line is they're just continuing to prop up asset bubbles. So however they're propping up asset bubbles at, at the time, they'll, they'll use the, the data collection and the, the crunching of that data by artificial intelligence to achieve those objectives, the state of objectives. Now, I think what will possibly happen in the future, and this is me just kind of trying to take a step back and see things through the eyes of a central planner. And you're talking about the Great Reset. So someone or a group like the World Economic Forum, if you go through their website and just read their blog posts and read what they're talking about, it becomes abundantly clear that what they want to achieve is this tops-down centralized planned global economy where there's no private property okay well right. so okay how do you get there well let's go back to march if in march the the government or the fed would have done nothing what would have happened to asset prices i think that's that's obvious you don't have to be a rocket scientist they probably would have gone down by a lot more than they went down during the gfc which was about 50%. The main asset prices I'm referring to are housing and the stock market. So if housing and the stock market would have gone down, let's say by 50, 60, 70%, and let's remember that consumer debt and more importantly, corporate debt was at all time highs. So the balance sheet of those corporations were far worse in March than they were back in 2008. Right. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So, so, the, so you'd have a lot more bankruptcies, is my point. Yeah. So you've got this situation where we all have accounts with the Fed. You have all these bankruptcies. You have asset prices, stock market plummeting by 50%, and people's purchasing power going down significantly because most people's purchasing power is in the form of either their house or their 401k or their job, right? So if, if all that kind of poof disappears, so does the purchasing power, then the, the, the economy is 70% consumption, right? So the economy crashes as well. And that gives us this feedback loop, which really makes more, creates more bankruptcies for these corporations. So we see what happened in March where the Fed steps in and starts buying debt of all these corporations, even junk debt. Right. 
And so I think they, they potentially do that again. Well, if they own enough debt, maybe they start buying equities, all of a sudden, all the assets, all the corporations, all the stocks, all the bonds of everything that we produce in the United States, it goes onto the balance sheet of now what is essentially the government because we've combined them, remember with MMT. Right. And then all the people who are upside down in their house and, and they, they can't afford their mortgage payments, they're about ready to get kicked out you know, on the street then the, the, the government comes in and says, okay, well, we'll bail you out. We'll buy those mortgages from you. And then we'll pay you whatever the value of your property was prior to this crash. We'll give you a hundred cents on the dollar, let's say. Right. And then you can go ahead and just rent it back from us, but we'll own the deed. We'll own the title. And of course, they're doing that through creating more bank reserves because they have an unlimited balance sheet. Now the Fed, as we know, has an unlimited balance sheet. In this case, once they merge, then that unlimited balance sheet would be the government's as well. Yeah. So if you're so, just to summarize here, you start by merging the balance sheets through MMT, and then if you do have a crash, all of those assets, the Fed comes in and scoops up, or the government, it goes onto the balance sheet of the government. So now all of a sudden, they own all of the the majority of the assets. And I think the majority of the assets they want to own, if you read the World Economic Forum's website, is really, it's all about housing and automobiles. That's their, their main push. Mm -hmm. Because they don't want people owning houses and they don't want people owning cars. And again, I know this sounds like tinfoil hat stuff, but- just, I take them at their word. That's what it yeah, says. Don't take, yeah, don't take my word on it. Just go right to their website and, and read what, what they say and, and what their projections are for the future. So I think that uh, all these things, it all makes sense. When you look at the Fed coin, you look at the Banking for All Act, you look at MMT, you look at their objectives, uh, they, you, they, you see these videos and these blog posts where they say quite literally that you will own nothing and you will be happy. Right. And, and I, I read another blog post that was, it was funny, I, I used it for a video today. And I looked at the blog post on their, their website, but what was weird, you know when you Google something and you can see like the, the, the title or part of the title of the video, it didn't match up with the title of the actual blog post when I clicked on it. Hmm. I thought, hmm, that was weird. So what I did is I, I Googled the portion of the title that I could see in, in the, the, the Google listing. And sure enough, the original article came up because they also posted it on Forbes. Oh. And the original title of the article was uh, you'll own nothing, you'll have no privacy, right? And life has never been better. I read that one. And, and, yeah. So what they did is they switched the title because obviously they got so much negative feedback on it yeah. that they had to change it up. And then they put in this bogus disclaimer saying, "Oh, this isn't our our vision. Uh, this is just we wanted to create dialogue going back and forth with the global economic community." And I said, yeah, that's a lot like Jerome Powell going in in September of 2019 and saying, oh, just don't look over here. Whatever you do, don't call it QE when yeah. everyone knows that that's exactly what they're doing. So when you put all these pieces of the puzzle together, I think that's what you get. You have this kind of really communist utopian society 
where uh, everything is controlled through artificial intelligence. That's where I was going with that. Yeah. And I think kind of the segue will be that they want to control interest rates better through AI. They want to micromanage the economy better. But, you know, once they cross that line, they'll just manage more and more and more of the economy until all of a sudden we wake up and it's 100% and we're right in the middle of their utopian dream. Yeah. Wow. That was a, that was a lot right there. Lots, lots to unpack. I want to dig into some of that. Um, now, I just do want to add real quick before I uh, dig into that. Um, not only are they saying that on their website, and again, like I take them at their word, right? That they're saying that it's not conspiracy. But we also know on the other side, there's kind of two forces that are converging. And we have whatever you want to call the left um, Marxism, right? That's, that's infiltrated. BLM says they're trained Marxism. So we kind of have that coming. And under Marxism, they also believe in private property being wrong, right? Private property being evil. So we have the Marxism wanting to take away private property. And then we have the World Economic Forum and they're kind of coming like this. And so- anybody, They're all Marxists. Right. They're all Marxists. Yeah, so anybody who thinks that that's not coming, they're not paying attention. Yeah, look, in fact, right here, I'm gonna read it to you. I've got a quote from Marx that I used in, in my video today. It says, the theory of the communist may be summed up in a single sentence. Abolition of private property. Wow. Boom. There you go. There you go. Now, I had some, someone on Twitter said, why are you guys all so hung up on owning, owning things? <laughs> <laughs> because if you, don't, if you don't own anything, you got to ask yourself, who owns it? Right. They, they just go down that rabbit hole and take it to its logical conclusion. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this goes into philosophical argument or debate or whatever conversation, but I mean, humans create, right? We're creators and we create things. And so we want to own those things that we create and then we can control those things and we can use those things to create more things. And if you don't own anything, you're not going to create anything. And what kind of world are we in at that point? Yeah. And they also um, haven't studied history. Anyone right. that, that, that they just don't understand, they don't understand economics. Because if you look at one of the main reasons communism failed in Russia, as an example, is because they didn't have any price signals. Right. And in order for price signals to give you the data that you need to distribute and allocate scarce resources efficiently, you have to have private property. Yeah. That's, that's the only way it works. Yeah. And if you don't have the private property, you don't have the price signals. If you don't have the price signals, you don't have the data. If you don't have the data, then you misallocate resources and then your whole economy implodes. Yeah. You know, we're roughly the same age. And so we kind of grew up in the same era and, you know, com Russia was communist and we had the Berlin wall. And I remember as a kid thinking, shoot, man, they kind of put that wall up overnight. What if I was at my friend's house and they put the wall up, I was stuck. And I remember that, but there's really been no better experiment done than the Berlin wall because they took the same country, the same work ethic, the same people, the same culture, same everything. And they put a wall up and they said, Hey, we're on one side, we're going to control everything. It's going to be perfect utopia. Everything's going to be you know, free, perfect. And we're going to put up barbed wire and machine guns to keep all those evil capitalists from coming over and pillaging all our free stuff. Right? Well, throughout all the time, the Berlin wall was up. They didn't stop anybody from trying to get into the communist side, but they killed lots of people trying to get out of the communist side. And, and, and there's several stories that have been written about that. But if you look at what happened, it's just amazing how the controlled side, uh, the, the, the communism side, and they just fell apart. Shortages on everything, as you said, right? No, the cars were old, the buildings were in shambles, and everything just fell apart. Yeah, and most people don't 
really think through what happened when they started to build the Berlin Wall. I, 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 I don't know, I guess it's not even, most people aren't even cognizant of it, they don't give it any thought. But if, if you try to put yourself in East Germany around that time, it's not like the politicians came and said, hey, we've got this great idea. We're gonna build this wall, we're gonna lock you in, we're never ever gonna let you out, and if you try to escape, we're gonna shoot you with a machine gun. And everyone said, oh, well, that sounds fantastic. Sign me up. No, of course not. The way it was sold to the people is though we're building this wall for your safety. This wall is going to keep you safe. Right. And they never said anything about not being able to leave or you can come and go. Whatever. We're just building this wall for your protection. So you think about all the things that have been sold to just average people throughout the world in the name of safety. And usually when you've got a politician saying that to you, it's, it has nothing to do with your safety and it has everything to do with their power. Yeah. And I think we should really be recognizing that today when we live in this world of lockdowns where everything is being done for our safety. This is for your safety. That's for your safety. Is it for, or is it more about power? I'm not saying it is or isn't, but I'm saying that this is something that people should really be thinking through and understanding that whenever you're giving the government this type of power, usually they will use it against you and you've got to do a thorough cost benefit analysis. And most people, whether they're arguing for something I agree with or against it, they, they they get hyper-focused on either the costs or the benefits, whichever they, whichever fits into their narrative, yeah. right? And I think that people, especially now, really need to do a cost-benefit analysis. And like I said, they need to be very apprehensive about the amount of power they're giving the government, understanding that the government over the long run will most likely use that power to take away our personal liberties and our personal freedom. You know, one tweet that I sent out the other day that I, I think people should, I mean, it sounds a little funny, but I, I think we'd be far better off if we looked at the government the same way that they looked at Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah. Remember the Silence of the Lambs movies? Yeah. That they knew that, that using this guy had massive downside. Like you could really get in trouble trying to talk to this guy right. because he was bad news personified. And so you had a huge amount of downside risk, but the risk of not using him was so great that you kind of have to do that cost benefit analysis. Yeah. So, but they didn't look at Hannibal Lecter as this panacea. Like if they had a problem deciding where they should go to lunch, they, they wouldn't go to Hannibal Lecter and say, hey, what do you think? Right. Because the next thing you know, you're eating each other's brain for lunch. Right. So they, they, they just, they, they used him sparingly only when they had to, only in a case of an absolute emergency where there were no other options. And I think if we looked at government the exact same way, our society would be far better off. Just look at those politicians as Hannibal Lecter, locked up in a straitjacket with that mask over his face, yep. right? And, and understand that if you decide to go to government for some sort of solution, 
that you've got to be extremely leery. You, you've got to, to understand that you're doing a deal with the devil yep. and only go and use that, we'll call it a resource, at, at, if you have no other option. Right. So if we go into a war, as an example, we get invaded. OK, fine. We use the government. We have no other option. But you don't go to the government when you need to figure out uh, if you want to build a home or you want to build a building right here. No, 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 no. That's not where you go to government. You don't go to a government to try to figure out if you need or if you want to wear a mask. Right. That, that's your decision. We, yeah. we get the government out of it. So that's my my little rant there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so like I said, I want to kind of dig into um, some of that stuff. I, I wanted to talk more about um, the Fed, but I think we're going to kind of skip past that a little bit and dig in a little bit deeper kind of what you talked about there. Um, so I look at it on, on two sides. So we have this World Economic Forum and what are called NGOs, right? Non-governmental organizations. So we have the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum. We have the UN. World Bank, IMF. We have, and the IMF, okay? And so they're above the government, right? So they're above the president. And, you know, we had the IMF. So the IMF was created under the Bretton Woods Agreement. Right. And recently they came out calling for a Bretton Woods 2 moment, which to me sounds like they're based, Bretton Woods 1 got the whole world together on one currency. So, and then after the ties to gold were severed, everyone kind of has their own currency and they're all devaluing yeah. against each other. But Bretton Woods too seems like they want to get all the world back together in one currency um, and probably a CBDC, right? Central bank digital currency. So you have- like, Not even a central bank digital currency. They want it to be the digital SDR. Uh, yeah, yeah, a digital SDR, whatever you want to call it, digital, a digital currency SDR. Um, but so if you have these non-governmental NGOs, the World Economic Forum and the IMF that are above governments, how does the US fall into that? So. Uh, or, or each individual country. So it seems like the World Economic Forum, and really it's like a takeover of the bankers where the bankers want to own everything. But doesn't that usurp the US? So you talked about the US um, extending money out, indebting companies even more, right? Put actually make, they, they say they're giving them a lifeline, but really it's making them even deeper in debt. Um, so the US takes it over, but does that eventually get rolled up into the NGOs? Or how do you see that playing out? I mean, I mean it's. Yeah, I think that's their game plan. I mean, I think that's what they would see as ideal because they want as much central power as possible. And that, that's global central power, not, not just uh, individual countries. And I think if it were up to them, they would control everything and all the countries would be basically like, uh, like states. Right. So, you know, like, like the United States would be Georgia right. or Florida, something like that. And I, I think that uh, they would manage, micromanage the entire globe. That's, that's, that's the game plan. So they want the central bank digital currencies. And you know, I found it interesting that a lot of the people that pushed back on that gal with the IMF who did that little uh, article on Bretton Woods 2.0 said, oh, it's nothing. She's not saying anything that's that crazy. You know, just look at, uh, you know, there's nothing nefarious in there. But what they don't do is, is they don't take everything else the World Economic Forum has written and combine it with what she's saying. Right. <laughs> and if you combine everything that they've talked about with the, the, the digital SDR and central bank digital currencies and then look at what she's saying, you see it through a completely uh, different lens. 
So yeah, I mean, I think they want the central banks themselves to have digital currencies. Uh, that's just data collection. And then they're going to be the, the central bank of the world. And uh, they're gonna control everything. And all of the, what are now countries are just gonna be really under their, uh, under their jurisdiction. And they, meaning the global elites, the IMF, the World Economic Forum, and these people that have this, uh, for lack of a better term, they have a God complex. Right. And uh, they, they, they think that, um, I mean, if you look at Marx and understand his views on capitalism, you, you, you understand that he, he understood that there was a place for capitalism. He, he didn't see capitalism and Marxism or communism as, as competing against one another. He, he, said, he saw it as a transition. So you started with feudalism, and even he admitted that you couldn't go from feudalism straight to communism. It wouldn't work right. because you needed the entrepreneur. You needed the capitalist to come in and grow industry and create this technology that under communism they just couldn't create. And he said, once you got communism to a certain point, then you have the revolution. And so all of the, the, the Marxists now, you know, you always use the example of China or use the example of, of Russia. And it just, it, it bounces off them just like water off a duck's back because they don't recognize as Russia as doing it the right way. Because if you look at the, the Chinese documents when Russia failed, you know, China sent in a lot of their economists into Russia to figure out, okay, what went wrong? And the conclusion they came to wasn't that communist is, or communism is a problem. The conclusion they came to is that Russia tried to institute it prior to something that they call late stage capitalism. Too soon. That's right, too soon. Yeah. So now I think these, uh, I, I think they're, like I said earlier, I think they're all Marxists, and they they see this uh, as we've got to the end of capitalism. And if you look and, and read at uh, the the World Economic Forum, and mostly Klaus Schwab, who's who's kind of their their head guy, he started it in 1971. You read a lot of his blog posts or a lot of his interviews, and he'll say that we need to reimagine capitalism. Right. <laughs> That's because he yes. knows he can't come right out and say we need communism. Yeah. So he's got to have some sort of transition uh, terminology, we'll call it. Yeah. So he says, you know, we need to uh, we need to move away from neoliberalism, which sounds kind of like a bad word. Whenever you put neo in front of yeah. anything, you know, Americans always think it's oh, it's some sort of has to do with Hitler or something. But no, if you look at what neoliberalism is, you say, well, that's pretty darn good. That's exactly what I want. So he's saying we need to move away from this. We need to reimagine capitalism. Well, reimagining capitalism to him is just moving closer and closer to Marxism. Because again, I think he believes that this, we're at late stage capitalism where it can't continue on any further. And what they believe is that once capitalism hits a certain point, then it starts to feed on itself. And if you don't come in with a revolution, if you don't come in with a great reset, then you're going to, then capitalism is going to destroy itself and take us right back to where we started with a, an economy that looks a lot more like feudalism. Yeah. And so in the mind of the market, so you see all these people out there, whether it's Antifa or, uh, 
I, I don't I don't I don't want to put thoughts in people's heads, but if you look at what they're saying, the majority of them, and the people who are rioting, you look at what they're saying at the World Economic Forum and all these institutes we just talked about, and it's it's just blatantly obvious that they they see the world right now as being in this state of late stage capitalism. And if they don't start a revolution right now, we are all doomed. That that's how so that's how they justify going out and using violence. That's how they justify all these things that normal people look at on TV and say, what are you doing? Like, yeah. like what are you thinking? That that's to them it makes complete sense. And yeah. to them, it's just all the other people around them that aren't rioting, they're the people that don't get it. And they're the people that haven't studied history. Yeah. You see? And, and so, because a lot of what Marx talked about is coming to fruition in, in, in their eyes, right? See, the thing, though, it, the thing is that they blame it on capitalism when actually it, it's a lack of free market capitalism. That's the problem. Right. So what, and let me be more specific here. So they'll see something like all these asset bubbles. And Marx said that in late stage capitalism, he never referred it to that specifically, I don't think, but he kind of uh, eluded to this and, and they kind of took the ball and created that, that phrase. So in, in, this, um, in this stage, what happens is the capitalists can't squeeze any more profit out of their workers. And, and so what the, the Marxists would say now is they'd say, look at a chart of uh, productivity and look at a chart of real wage gains. You'll see that it's flat while productivity is going up. They would use that as an example of what's happening. The worker is getting squeezed more and more and more and more by the, co the corporation to extract profits. But the corporations do that to a point where they can't go any further because the workers don't have jobs. Therefore, the demand side of the equation starts to crumble. So then the capitalists say, okay, well, the only thing that we can do now because we've squeezed all the blood out of the turnip that is the worker is we have to take that and go into the cat and buy assets. So that's what creates this boom bust cycle in their minds. Right. I'm just using their words. It's not, I'm not saying that right. when, when you or I would look at it and say, what are you talking about? That's not what's creating the boom bust cycle. The boom bust cycle is created by the fed right. coming in and dropping interest rates artificially low. And they would argue, no, 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 but that's capitalism. Because the definition of capitalism is basically private property. And the Fed, as Mark, as you would admit, is owned by the banks. Therefore, it's private property. Therefore, the Fed is capitalism. Right. The Fed is the definition of capitalism. And the Fed is coming in and bailing out all the other capitalists. Right. So that's why, in my opinion, I really think we need to start using the term free market capitalism because you can have capitalism without a free market yeah and i think we should just abandon that word all capitalism word altogether and just say free free market <laughs> no because you can have socialism with a free market how i thought socialism is a controlled economy uh, is it, it's, no, no, no. it's 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 just where the the, the uh, means of production is owned by the individual workers you see so you can have a type of free market so you got to have the, the government out of the way. You've got to have all of these distortions that are created by the Fed and these central planners. You've got to get that out. You've got to have a free market where people are able to profit, but maybe even more importantly, 
people and businesses are able to go out of business. Right. They're able to take a loss in addition to the profit. So what we've done now is we've tried to eliminate all of the loss and prop things up and we don't have the, the creative destruction. We don't have Schumpeter's law taking right. effect. So my, my point there is we've got to have not just capitalism and private property, but we have to have a free market where we're allowing people to profit. We're allowing people to fail. Yep. They have to. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, that is definitely the bigger picture of what's happening, but it seems like right in front of us, uh, as you kind of alluded to in the beginning, um, the crushing of the economy, the saddling of more debt, um, leads to this eventual takeover. And, and, and this was again, taking them at their word. This is what the IMF Bretton Woods two moment said, uh, I forget what her name was, Katarina, maybe it was. Um, but she said that the, she said that the, um, pandemic has caused, I think, a 5% drop in GDP. About $15 trillion has been sucked out of the economy. There's about 26 countries that are broke and they're extending loans to them. Yeah. And they're doing this like special loan forgiveness. So they've purposely put these company, potentially, depending on how you view this, but they could potentially have been crushing these economies, forcing them to take on money, as you suggest, to then give them these, these strings. And now we've seen in Canada, they said that um, the next round of like loans are going to start doing for businesses. They want equity, right? So we're, we're seeing this start to play out. Um, I guess my question is how are you thinking about this? Because um, you're kind of a global citizen, if you will, right? You live kind of all over the world. Um, we won't disclose where you're at right now, but <laughs> you're, you're all over the world. And uh, I know this is something that you're looking at. So if you see, and if you're taking the world economic forum at their word, um, you see that there's going to be this takeover where they're going to try to, by 2030, maybe over the next 10 years, try to complete this. How does somebody think about this um, to mitigate against that? I mean, is it um, trying to get out of the financial system so they can't do it? Is it moving to other countries? How do you view that? Yeah, well, first I'd like to point out, I, let's try to find a country that has grown to prosperity through the help of the IMF. Uh, that's a that's an easy search because you don't find it <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly it's the same it's the same thing by trying to take a, a specific uh, group of uh, society or the, any population around the world and ask you know who's come to affluence through welfare right none none, none. It, it just it doesn't work that way but back to your your main question there I think obviously you've got to try to get out of the system and own an asset that doesn't have any counterparty risk. So that would be precious metals, that would be Bitcoin, but that's not a panacea. And I think right now people are making the mistake of thinking it is. Whenever I, I talk about this stuff on Twitter, you know, I, the, without a doubt, the Twitter uh, feed will be full of people saying, oh, just buy Bitcoin. Oh, just buy, um, you know, Ethereum. Oh, just buy gold. Just buy gold. Problem solved. Just right. buy Bitcoin. It solves this problem. Yep. But, you know, everything that I'm talking about, they feel as though Bitcoin solves. <laughs> no, 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 no. Bitcoin does not solve this problem because you, you've got to think about it this way. If you were trapped in Venezuela right now and you own Bitcoin, how great would your life be? It, it, you might have some, you might have kept your purchasing power, 
because you've got Bitcoin. It might have increased, but what can you buy? Right. You're still living in a hellhole. That's right. That's right. Or take it to an extreme, the, the example that Schiff always uses, that if you were deserted on an island and you had a, a treasure chest full of gold, but you had two coconuts and some sand and salt water, how, how rich would you be? Right. Gold doesn't solve that problem. Bitcoin doesn't solve that problem. Exactly. So at the end of the day, it still revolves around goods and services. That's the wealth of the economy. The wealth of the economy is not gold. Exactly. The wealth of the economy is not a, a green piece of paper or even a Bitcoin. Right. The wealth of the economy is the goods and services that it can create. So my point is it's great to have Bitcoin, great to have gold and silver, but you also have to have a passport for heaven's sakes. Yep. And if you do have a passport, then get two. Yep. Because we saw back in, in March and April that that U.S. passport didn't do you much good. And yep. I know that for a fact because I was trying to travel around from Florida and get to the, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, St. Bart's, and trying to get to a place where I had more personal freedom and try to just get out of the insanity that was going on around me in the world. And it, it, there were a lot of places I could not go because I, they just flat out rejected a U.S. passport. So I think first and foremost, you have to have one. And you know, what's the, the stat? Like probably 20% of Americans actually have passports. So get one first and foremost. And then when you do, think about getting a second one to make sure that you've got a plan B. There, there's no downside to having your passport. Yeah. And uh, and, I think that's something and, people and really- to your point, I mean, getting a passport right now in the US could take six, eight months at least. So- yeah, I, I was, Someone was telling me about that the other day. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't believe that. And a lot of people say, well, I, I've got no problems because I live in Wyoming. Or I don't worry about it. I, I'm, I, I wanna be a patriot and stay here and fight. Because the, if, this, if this goes down with the World Economic Forum or what you're saying, you know, Mark Moss and George Gammon, then this is, they're going to control the entire world. So I'd rather be in South Dakota right here with my guns and my First Amendment rights. That, you know, <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know how much of those rights you still have. But uh, my, my point is I don't think this is a global thing. And this is the good news. So everything I've been talking about is some crazy stuff. But I think the, the I, don't know, I don't know if it's a silver lining is the right word, but I think the good news is there are a lot of countries in the world today where this agenda that they've outlined just would not go over. Yeah. And it just, it, it's, it's, it's antithetical to the success of their economy. So one of their big pushes is with green energy. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, but this is one of their, their pushes. So you have to look at countries who would not benefit from that. So let's say Saudi Arabia, or let's say even Colombia, something like that. They, they would not benefit from that at all. That, that would be bad for their economy. So they're gonna be more likely to really push against this World Economic Forum, just simply tell them to pound sand. Right. And you know, IMF, you can have whatever money you want, we're not gonna play your game. Another thing too, when you look at uh, digital currencies, it's very easy for Americans to accept that as being part of the future. It makes a lot of sense, especially in Europe or Japan or uh, many places in Asia, 
because we really don't use dollar bills that often. But places like Colombia and Ecuador, I mean, 90% of the transactions are in cash. There's places that you go into the really nice areas of town where if you go in there with a credit card, those, no, huh. no. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. not going to fly. You got to have cash. So wherever you go, just to be safe, you always got to have cash on you. And yeah. then once you get to the outskirts of town, I mean, how many people even have a bank account? I'd say, I mean, I've been there, I've lived there, I've spent a lot of time, not only in Colombia, but over 40 countries in the world. And you know, just right there in Medellin, once you get to the, the outskirts, I'll bet you 80% of those people do not have bank accounts. They do not have them. So how on earth are you gonna ban cash? Yeah. In well, a place like that, how are you going to go to a central bank digital currency? In India, they just made the, what, 500 rupee notes and 100 rupee notes just illegal. Like you have whatever, 60, 90 days, turn them in and they're illegal. So it can yeah, happen, but, but, I, but I do understand what you're saying. Um, yeah, it's going to take a long, a much longer time to go to everyone having an account with the central bank and, and banning cash in a place, in, one of the, in a developed economy. Than it's than it would in uh, a more developed Western economy like the United States, Japan, Europe, something like that. So my point is, you, you've got to look around the world and say, okay, where number one, where are they going to push against this, and where is it probably not going to fly? And then what areas would it be almost impossible right now to roll out this type of plan? And maybe that's somewhere where you want to spend a little bit more time, or at least maybe those areas are places where you might want to put some of your portfolio to hedge against currency and political risk. Yeah. And then I also think about um, some of the Eastern European countries that are recently out of socialism and communism. 100%. They're not going to be eager to go back into it either. Yep. Um, so then you have those kinds of countries. And then also, if you look at the world economic plan, they're imagining this fair distribution and really what they want to do is knock down the big players right so instead of bringing everybody up they just bring the u.s down so then you can understand that the u.s is going to be adversely affected where other countries might be minimally if not even at all affected because of them trying to kind of redistribute so you have that as well so i'm definitely agreeing with you on uh, the plan b passport thing as a matter of fact uh, i'm working on a set for my family right now that hopefully we'll have in place uh, before the end of the year um, just to have that that backup. So yeah, and it's also a moving target, Mark. I, I think I've I can easier I have an easier way of getting my head around this type of lifestyle. But uh, so many people that I talk to, you know, I'll mention Puerto Rico, I'll mention Eastern Europe to your point, and they'll give a laundry list as to well, what if this happens? Well, what if this happens? What if this happens? And it's it they. they it's weird that, that for some reason, Americans especially, have this thing kind of, they've been brainwashed or they have this idea that if I go to XYZ country, I can never leave. Right. I'm, I'm there and I'm, I'm there for the rest of my life. Just that's the decision I've made and I'm here. Right. It, no, no, if you go somewhere and you don't like it, Go somewhere else. Right. <laughs> it's a moving target, for heaven's sake. Yeah. You're not a vegetable. You're not a tree. Yeah. And I, I don't understand. <laughs> and a lot of people, and it seems kind of silly to say it, but if you go through Twitter, if you go through the comments of my YouTube videos, I'm sure you get this all the time as well. 
that you see people have this mindset for some reason and it's it's bizarre to me and i think they would be better off if they just kind of opened their eyes and said well wait a minute if i like xyz country right now and i go there for a year or two and they start doing stupid stuff well then i'll move and i'll go somewhere where i think i'm going to be treated better yeah well two points to that first off um all this is hypothetical right now right so it is a moving target we kind of have to wait and see and then we need to be able to to move and react so we don't know and it's it's an evolving situation but the other thing uh, i've traveled a lot you've traveled even more than me and i think you'll probably agree that when you travel the world, it seems like everybody's traveling, but Americans, <laughs> like Americans yeah. don't travel. That I think you just said yeah. like past Americans have like 20% of Americans have passports even. So um, other countries, they seem to move around a lot. They kind of have that free attitude where us people don't. Um, and so there is that mind shift to, to kind of get over there. Um, I'm curious. So you have the passports and that gives you options. And that's one reason why I tell people we focus on money, not to just accumulate and stack it. It's so we can have options. Yep. Um, and so we can buy passports. I'm working on that. It's not cheap. I'm like, should I buy two more duplexes cash or should I buy passports? <laughs> like, yeah. dang, I'd rather yeah. buy a couple more duplexes, but I don't know if I want to spend that money on, on, on passports, but I think I'm going to need it. I yeah. think I'm gonna, so I'm going to do that. But then that brings me to my next question, which I'm curious how you think about this. We're both real estate investors. Um, how do you look at leaving all your real estate in, in, in one country, the United States, particularly um, not really worried about that. I mean, still established. I know you establish real estate in other countries as well. So you're just kind of yeah. diversifying that risk. Yeah. I think you got to diversify because we don't know what's going to happen. Everything that we're talking about is, is just, it, it's not a certainty. It's just, there's, there's probabilities and yep. you and I can go through and, and, and dig into the data and do the research and we can try to connect the dots for people and we can try to put the pieces of the puzzle together, but none of us have a crystal ball. And uh, hopefully people can come to the probabilities on their own and decide, okay, I I give this an X chance of happening, you know, whether it's a great reset or a digital dollar or anything like that. So who knows, the United States could be the, the best economy for the next, hundred years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think the probabilities are rather low, right. but it is a possibility for sure. It's above a 1%. So I, I have some dollar denominated assets, but to be honest, I mean, I'm selling my, my U.S. real estate. And the reason I'm selling it isn't necessarily a, a political risk thing, but, but it's more so it's expensive. And it's my philosophy. I just try to keep it real simple. So I just buy things when they're cheap. I sell them when they're expensive. I bought the majority of my U.S. real estate in 2012 when it was very, very cheap. And uh, since 2018, it's, it's what I would consider expensive. So I'm just gradually selling, selling. I've got a few properties left. And I told my property manager that uh, when my tenants are done with their lease, we're done. Yeah. Put them on the market because I'm going to take that equity and move it somewhere. It could be dollar denominated, but move it somewhere where I, I think is, is is cheap right now. So there's, you know, commodities I think are cheap. There's a lot of things you can buy that pay you to own them, just like a rental property yeah. that aren't at uh, all time highs and are quite frankly, very, very low relative to other asset prices in the S&P 500. Yeah. Uh, I, one more topic I want to dive into, um, you know, 
I'm the Bitcoin guy. I've been talking about Bitcoin for five years now. I know you weren't necessarily. I know you've definitely gotten more into it. Um, I'm curious where you're thinking about it today in, in regards to this conversation that we're having, uh, particularly, and um, having that plan B and being able to move around. We don't know where we're going. Maybe, as you said, we're not trees. We might be moving around several places. And it seems like there's been a massive shift in the world that just happened. And so growing up, I had friends who's moved from Iran or Afghanistan or South Africa. Some of my best friends moved from South Africa. When they came, they had to come penniless. Mm. They left an oppressive regime to move to a free area, but they couldn't take their money out of the bank. They couldn't bring their real estate. They couldn't bring their gold. They came broke. And a country can own you when they can control your money. Right. But Bitcoin changes that all of a sudden. Now I can leave with my wealth. And there's nothing a nation can do. And it's the only thing that allows us to do that. And I think that's going to speed up this uh, competition between countries. And so when you talk about buying Bitcoin doesn't fix everything, well, it kind of does. It, one, it, it allows me to, one, have options that we never had in the history of the world. Um, it also neuters the government by taking my money out of their system. It somewhat limits their ability to um, impose their will. I'm curious uh, what your views are on Bitcoin in relation to those kind of topics right now. Well, I still think you have to be able to leave the country. Right. It, it, this assumes you can leave. And uh, I think that's where the, the passport comes in that we talked about earlier. But as far as long term, I think Bitcoin is fantastic. I think it's a great speculation. I think there's, there's tremendous, tremendous asymmetry. I think that, uh, unfortunately, the better Bitcoin does, the, the more it's going to have a target on its back through governments. But to your point, hopefully, there'll be some countries with their heads screwed on right that will see that as an opportunity to bring in investment and bring in entrepreneurs and people that actually create jobs. That, that's, that's what I'm hoping. Um, I think short term, that are super, super, super excited about it and just ranting and raving. And I, I get a little concerned that it may be overbought short term <laughs> yeah. because I just, yeah, man. I mean, you know, on Twitter right now sure. and in the comments, I mean, my goodness gracious, I've never seen more enthusiasm about uh, Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin. That said, I was just talking to Lynn Alden the other day and she does extensive research. And she pointed out that the Google keyword search for Bitcoin, uh, she did a comparison on the spike back in, was it 2017 or 2018 when we had that last bubble? Yep. And the, the Google searches were like 10 times higher back then than they are now. Yeah. So, so there is some data that would suggest that it's, it's really, you know, we're not back in 2017, 2018. It's not to say that I, I don't think you should buy Bitcoin. You shouldn't own it. Uh, Long term, I, I think it's great. And I, to your point, I think it solves so many problems that we have in the world today. Right. But I just think that short term, it could be, uh, people could be a little too excited about it. I, I'd much rather have people not talking about it and, uh, you know, to where you can swoop in and, and, and buy it and then ride it on the way up. But uh, I think it's a bit like gold too, in the sense that I kind of really worry about the price of gold. I just buy 10% of it. And I, I wouldn't allocate that much of my portfolio to Bitcoin, but whatever por- percentage of your, um, portfolio you allocate, I don't know that I would be really worried about the price. I, I'd probably, uh, maybe like kind of dollar cost average, but if the price did get low and everyone started to hate it for whatever reason, 
then I, I would be a more aggressive buyer. I think that's probably the best way to say it. A couple of things I would uh, add to that. One, you're not a short-term guy. <laughs> Neither am I. Yeah, so exactly. To, to even, be, to even yeah. talk about the price on a short-term basis, people ask me, where do you think the price of Bitcoin will be in a month or two? I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. Like, I don't even, yeah, exactly. I, I don't bother to interpret that. Um, so um, I like to look at kind of like you just said, uh, I bought big, um, real estate when it's cheap. It's expensive. I'm going to sell it. And so those are like decade moves, right? And a lot of yeah. big investors kind of look at like decade long moves. And so this decade is going towards hard real assets, commodities, as you said, gold, and I think Bitcoin. So it's not about a short-term move, it's about a long-term move. Uh, but from a political standpoint, talking about kind of the great reset, like I said, it's what gives me hope because we can now have that ability to, to move around, you know? Mm, and so that's sure. what I see as being the, the genius of, of this new technology that we have, <clears throat> is it allows us to fight back against this globalization push because it allows us to move with our wealth and, and we can accumulate gold, but I can't leave the country with my gold. Yeah. I think that you've got to separate the, the technology with the uh, price. And, and sometimes those are, are, are two completely different things, you know, as yeah. far as the technology and the, the philosophy, I mean, it, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's the future. It's, it's the future. If we're going to have freedom, if we're going to combat the central planners, a, a decentralized currency has got to be a part of that. Yep. And that's just the bottom line. Yep. And that's why that that's why it gives us hope for hope for the future. At least at least gives me hope for the future. The other thing I'd like to say, uh, just to kind of cap off this conversation, we'll wind it down. Is that you know obviously we talked about a lot of scary stuff, but everything as you said, right? These are all probabilities. The future is not set. I like to say that we're not victims. The future is ours to create. And if uh, you talked about the, the powers of be trying to make Bitcoin illegal, if a billion people don't want Bitcoin to be illegal, it's not going to be illegal. If a billion people don't want the Great Reset to happen, then they should stand up and push back against the Great Reset. And that's why, you know, I do what you do, I, or I, I do, and I know what you do, right? We're trying to educate people, and hopefully yeah. people can push back and not be victims. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. That there's a lot under your control. I mean, if you think about if you lived in Venezuela when uh, Hugo Chavez was president, well, you, to a certain degree, if you had some sort of resources, you would be able to move over to Colombia or you could have gone somewhere else. It would have been under your control. If you lived in Zimbabwe, if you lived in East Germany, before they built that wall, yeah. you probably could have walked across and said, you know what? I prefer what they're talking about. I prefer the political narrative over here in, in West Germany. You, you had the ability to do that, but at a certain point, it's too late. Right. So I, I think it, it goes back to what you're saying that we need to get this message out. We need to make people aware of what's going on around them. So they're not the frog boiling in the pot to where they wake up one morning and all of a sudden it's too late because the wall has been built around them. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a great way to end it, George. Uh, always a pleasure talking to you. I know we had some plans to maybe try to organize another meetup, but it looks like uh, the great governor in California has put an end to that. I know. <laughs> so uh, everybody stay tuned and we'll try to put something together um, later. Um, of course, uh, I'll link to your, your YouTube channel and your Twitter account. That's pretty active today. Anything else you want to draw attention to that people should uh, know about? No, I think that's it. I really apologize. Or I, <laughs> I really appreciate you having me on the, the show. 
And uh, I always enjoy the opportunity to chat for sure. All right, George. Uh, thanks so much. We'll talk soon. All right.